I wish you were as excited as I was to get into this passage. <clears throat> huh? You might be. I hope you are. I wish you were, because I'm pretty excited. And again, let me just say up front, this is going to be a two or three week foray. Enough said about that. Goat. Goat. Have you ever been a part of a goat discussion or a goat argument? Now, some of you are thinking animal. Get that out of your head. I don't mean an argument where you butt heads with somebody and make bleeding noises. Anybody know what goat stands for? Okay, if you do, hold on to it. GOAT, G-O-A-T, stands for, should be my initials, greatest of all time. Hey, Matthew, can you give me a little bit more here? I'll level just a little bit. GOAT, the greatest of all time. I saw it floating around Facebook and discussion boards on the Internet for a long time before I finally figured out what it meant. Greatest of all time. Now, it's real big in sports circles where people will argue and theorize and give statistics in order to prove that their favorite quarterback or point guard or catcher or whatever you call somebody in soccer is the greatest of all time. Let me give you a couple of examples. Pro football. Peyton Manning just retired, right? There are people who say that Peyton is the GOAT as far as NFL quarterbacks go. Greatest of all time. Then they'll give us statistics and his accomplishments. A record 539 touchdown passes. A record 71,940 passing yards. Two Super Bowl wins. Five-time league MVP. Boom. Goat. But then somebody comes behind them and says, Yeah, but Tom Brady owns Peyton Manning. Head-to-head, -head, Tom Brady is 11-5 against Peyton Manning. And while he may not have the bigger numbers and TDs and yards, Brady has won four Super Bowls, two more than Manning. And if we're going to talk about who the greatest is, shouldn't we say, let's talk Super Bowl wins? So some people would say Tom Brady is the GOAT. Tom Brady is the greatest of all time because he's got four Super Bowls. But then somebody pipes up and says, what about Joe Montana? He won four Super Bowls. How about Terry Bradshaw? He won four Super Bowls. And it goes on and on and on, and it never wins. It never ends. It never wins. I never win the GOAT conversation because it never ends. So who's the GOAT? And then you could get into pro basketball and like RG3. What? And you get into pro basketball, people will talk about Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, the Mamba, LeBron James, or now who seems to be the GOAT? Steph Curry, maybe? The point is, these arguments really never end. Because even though Andrew would assert that it's Peyton Manning, I've got Patriot fans that would say, no, it's definitely Tom Brady. So these things never end. These greatest of all time arguments. What we have today 
before us is a passage that has been the source of disagreement for nearly 2,000 years. There's been endless debate about it, and guess what? It's still not settled. But let's see what we can do with it. Let's read it first. If you would stand with us as we read the Word of God. Twelve verses. And let me tell you what, there's some tongue twisters in here. So if I trip up, don't be hating. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. There's too many people in my way here. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. All right. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let me pray. God, we humbly but confidently ask for Your Spirit's help today in apprehending, comprehending, and then living out Your Word. Give us understanding, Holy Spirit. We trust You as our teacher. And we believe that You have great things in store for us because Your Word bears fruit for holiness in Your people. May we see it today and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So, in the spirit of a goat argument, the question at hand for today is, who is Paul referring to in this passage? Or maybe a little more accurately, what stage of the Christian life is being referenced in this passage? Is this happening before salvation? Or is this happening after salvation? Is the experience being referenced speaking of someone who is a believer or a non-believer? Is this the conversion process or is this speaking of the sanctification process? The answer to these questions is both vital and, hear me say it, very difficult. It's pretty much agreed upon across ideological and denominational lines that this passage is hard to agree upon. Just to give you an idea about how much has been written on this passage, I, in the last week, have listened to 11 messages, each at least 45 minutes long. I've read at least five articles, and I have referenced a bunch of commentaries in preparation for this message, and I'm sure next week's message and maybe the week after that. John Piper has six messages on this passage in his series through Romans, 
D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was known for his meticulous work going verse by verse, word by word in a passage, also preached six messages on this passage. I promise I will not preach six messages out of this passage. Six messages on 11 verses. 12 verses, I guess. It's 12 verses. And Lloyd-Jones says this of this passage in particular. Quote, The theme of this volume is no mere fascinating theological or intellectual problem, but one of vital importance to Christian experience and to the health, well-being, and vigor of the church. To end a reading of Romans 7 in a depressed condition is to fail to understand it. End of quote. Now, I won't say that we have to agree on who this passage is talking about for all of us to be saved. And I won't hyperbolically say that if we don't understand this and agree upon it, that we can't progress in our Christian lives. But I will say that if we can grab a hold of it and wrestle with it and come out on the other side of it with a little blood on our face and sweat on our brow, with even a faint grasp of its meaning, we will surely be further down the road of progress than we were before. Asa, his big thing now is he'll come up to me on the couch and he does this number, he's like... Let's wrestle. Let's wrestle. And so I want to invite you to this morning is let's dive in here and let's wrestle. All right? You ready to wrestle? Let me review where we've been in our progress through Romans. Remember way, way, way back when we started in our overview of Romans, we compared going through this book like climbing Mount Everest. And we are getting up near the peak right now, and it's rarefied air. We've seen already sin, the need for being right with God. Everybody's a sinner. Imputed sin from Adam's act of disobedience. Everybody's born a sinner except Jesus, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And that we have a need for being right with God. Justification by faith is the means for being right with God. Hear me say it, and I'll say it every week that I can say it. There is no other way to be made right with God than justification by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that brought us to point three, blessings, the results of being right with God. And we'll be in point three for quite a while until we finish chapter eight, which will take a while. By now, most of you are familiar with Asian Station. And what this does is kind of gives us a broad overall picture of what the salvation experience looks like. Expiation is God taking our sins away from us. Propitiation is the process of God punishing Jesus in our place. We just sang about that. Imputation is God giving us the righteousness of Christ. So He took our sin away, punished Jesus for that sin, then took Jesus' perfect righteousness and gave it to us. That's imputation, which led us to a state of justification. I'm just. I'm right with God. And that was the whole theme of the book of Romans is how to be right with God. This process makes me right with God. Then I start in the process of sanctification, which is me progressively becoming more and more like Jesus, me living out what God has put into me, and that will lead me to the ultimate state of salvation. I was saved before the foundation of the world. At one point in time, I was saved. I am being saved, and one day I will be saved. Asian Station. This thing's really getting on my nerves. And the basis for all of this is our union with Christ. As a believer, you have been made one with Jesus Christ. Now, and that can't be overstated. Let me say it again. 
as a believer, you have been made one with Jesus Christ. His life is your life. His death was your death. His resurrection was your resurrection. We've been crucified with Him. We will be raised with Him. Spiritually, we have been raised with Him. One day, on the last day, our bodies will be raised with Him so that we might walk in newness of life now. Now that's all in review. And it's a lot. And we've got a lot in front of us today as well. So, what I want to do this morning is I want to give you two views of this passage. And I want to be fair and equitable in giving you these two views. And try to help you understand where each one is coming from in their view. Then I'm going to tell you what I think is the right one. And I do. I will choose a side. I will say, yes, I believe this is the proper interpretation of this passage so that we can come back together next week and probably the week after and teach from that perspective. I feel like it's necessary if we're going to be on the same page and at least agree that we're shooting from one particular angle. And hear me say this. This has been debated for two millennia. Okay? I am not arrogant enough to think that after all this time, I'm the one smart enough or enlightened enough to finally figure it out. Okay? But I do feel like I can look at what others have said, what the rest of the Bible says, and draw a conclusion that is both fair and informed. If we don't agree upon it in this building, we can love and encourage each other and build each other up instead of tearing each other apart. And I pray for grace and understanding for all of us. The first view that I want to present is that Paul is referencing his pre-Christian and then conversion experience through this passage. Let's read the passage again with that mindset. Think about Paul as an unbeliever struggling with the law of God, his sin. And then I'll present the arguments for it after we read it. And I'm going to breeze through it here again. Think about pre-conversion Paul and this happening. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now we're going to read that a couple more times, so get ready. Now, I think if you read that from the perspective of a conversion experience, wrestling with your sin, I think you can see why somebody would read this and say it refers to Paul in his pre-conversion conviction conversion experience time period. Let me give you some reasons used by those who say this. First, right off the bat, verse 14 says, I'm making sure that was up there, 
the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Now, that doesn't sound like someone who's saved, does it? Remember chapter 6 of Romans? Let's look at Romans 6, 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. But verse 14 said what? That I am sold under sin. But that's not all. Look back at Romans 6, 16-19. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So in those passages, he says you once were slaves to sin, but that you've become obedient from the heart. You've become set free from sin. You've become slaves of righteousness. So that's a pretty clear contrast, isn't it? Either the believer is a slave of sin or they're not. Right? Now, go to verse 23 of Romans 7. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Here again Paul says that I, that's right, I, Paul, am captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Here Paul, the apostle, as he pins the words that would become part of God's Word, says he is captive to the law of sin that dwells in his members. Now this would surely make sense to be referencing his pre-conversion experience, wouldn't it? In the view being presented right now, the presenters would say, yes, this is pre-conversion Paul because believers, and especially the hand-appointed apostle of Jesus Christ, would not reference himself in his new life as a slave to sin. Makes sense to me. So in this particular argument, argument, it would be said that Christians in general, and Paul specifically, would never and should never refer to themselves as slaves to sin captive to the law of sin, or held under sin's power in any way. We have been set free from sin, according to Paul's own words in chapter 6. Make sense? That's a pretty compelling argument. So that's the first argument. The second one is pretty compelling as well. This one though is speaking of something, or more properly someone who's not mentioned in the passage of 7, 14 through 25. And that someone, spelled with a capital S, that someone is the Holy Spirit. And at first that might not seem like a big deal, but if you look ahead into Romans 8, which is a picture of the triumph and victory that characterizes the Christian life, the Holy Spirit is referred to 15 times in the first 17 verses. That's a lot, right? That's pervasive. And if Romans 8 is true Christian experience, then not to mention the Holy Spirit at all would be a pretty telling sign. I think. 
Where is the Spirit in this discourse in 7, 14 through 25? The focus is on who? I, me, my members. Which seems to indicate that 14 through 25 is about a single solitary person wrestling with his own sin, wrestling with sin on his own, held prisoner with no helper, held prisoner with no advocate, held prisoner without the presence of God in his life. No Holy Spirit would equate to no salvation. And that's clear in Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. No Spirit, no salvation. And the Spirit is plainly not referenced in chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. Oh, wretched man that I am. I'm struggling. Law of sin in my members. Me, me, me. I, I, I. Not Him. No spirit, no salvation. Again, a very compelling argument in my mind. Another argument in favor of the view that Paul is speaking of his pre-conversion experience, and the last one we'll look at, and it's just for time's sake, because listen, I'm telling you, chase this rabbit a while. Chase this fox a while. Get on the internet and search this. You'll never exhaust everything that's out there debating these two sides. Good, godly people who disagree about this. So I'm just presenting three arguments for each this morning just for time's sake and for your sanity's sake. So the, third, the first one was what? He was referring to being captive to sin, being a slave to sin. When in Romans 6 he said we've been set free from the law of sin. Point two was, argument two was, there's no mention of the Holy Spirit. And this one, in favor of the view that Paul is speaking of his pre-conversion experience, is the way, the structure of the way that the passage is laid out. If you look at the flow of Romans 7, when you think of Romans 7, 14-25 as a pre-conversion experience, that camp would say the following. When we look at Romans 7 as a whole, we find a clear structure. This is outlined in verses 5-7. through 7. I don't know if I put that up there or not. No, I didn't. Let me read Romans 7, 5-7 through 7 for you. For we, when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions operated through the law in every part of us and bore fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old letter of the law. This is what, I think it's the guy's name is Thomas Schreiner. And I'll get to who he is in a minute. This is his quote about this structure. If you look at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 7, what I just read, he says verse 5 depicts pre-Christian experience, describing a time when we were in the flesh and explains that the flesh produced what? Death. Verse 6, he says, refers to Christians in four terms, but now, released, died to our old life, and capital S, Spirit. Virtually all commentators, he says, I'm still quoting Thomas Schreiner, virtually all commentators agree that verse 5 refers to unbelievers and verse 6 to believers. But here's the key point, Schreiner says. Romans 7, 7 through 25, which includes our passage today and what we talked about last week. 
Romans 7, 7 through 25 unpacks verse 5, which is the pre-conversion person. And then Romans 8, 1 through 17 unpacks verse 6, which is post-conversion. In verses 7 through 25 of chapter 7, we see how sin via the law brings death to those in the flesh. And in Romans 8, 1 through 17, we see how the Spirit grants life to those who belong to Jesus Christ. So he, I'll close the quote here with him by him saying, Romans 7, 5 through 6 forecasts what Paul is about to say in remarkably clear terms. Which would say through chapter 7 is pre-conversion, chapter 8 verses 1 through 17 is post-conversion because of the structure of verses 5 and 6. Now I know that's a lot and that's tangled up. But let me tell you about this Thomas Schreiner guy. It's a long quote from him. Thomas Schreiner is the professor of New Testament interpretation and associate dean for scripture interpretation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. So this is not just some guy with a blog somewhere who's just expressing his opinions. He is trained, he is diligent, and he is what most people would call an authority on the process of biblical interpretation which would make sense as to why that's so complicated. He's saying verse 5 is explained at the end of chapter 7. Verse 6 is explained at the beginning of chapter 8. Verse 5 is explaining pre-conversion experience. Verse 6 is describing post-conversion experience. So the end of chapter 7 is about the pre-conversion experience. And I'm going... This guy's pretty sharp. And Southern Baptist Theological Seminary I have very high regard for. Is that not where Nate's going? Am I right? Nate Dickinson is there now. So this is not just some guy. He is trained. He is an authority. And he is teaching people how to interpret the Bible. And what he is saying is that this passage is referring back to the time that Paul was when we were in the flesh, which would be our pre-conversion experience. And it pulls from Romans 1 through 6, chapters 1 through 6, and into, verse, into chapter 7 to back up those claims. So this argument is not without basis. It's not without serious thought and good, sound biblical interpretation, precepts, and processes. So that's the pre-conversion argument. Three points of it again. There's many more, but I'm going to stop with three. So there's a lot more reasons that can be referenced and looked at, but we'll stop with these three for time's sake. So you might think Peyton Manning, greatest of all time, slam dunk, right? We've proved our point. This passage in Romans 7, 14 through 25 is referring to Paul's, referring to our pre-conversion experience. Well, maybe not. Let's look at the other side that says that Romans 7, 14 through 25 is describing the sanctification process in a Christian's post-conversion life. To be fair and even, we'll look at three arguments from this side as well. And then I'll tell you which side I come down on and what side I'll be teaching and preaching from in the next week or two. Now, let's read the passage again. Bear with me. For, now, change your mind. Stop. Pull the slide out that says pre-conversion. Put the slide in that says post-conversion and look through that lens. Now, if you're reading Tally Ho the Fox, which you should be by now, the first chapter is what? Anybody? Five dollars if somebody gets it. Somebody, so grab a book, people. <laughs> the 
The first chapter is called How Vital is Vision? And what he's talking about is the lens that you look through can really determine what you see. So what I want you to do is to change your lens. Go from pre-conversion, Paul. Change the slide. Now look at this passage as post-conversion, Paul. Somebody who's struggling with his sanctification, not his salvation. Okay, you ready? Have you switched the slide? Everybody switched? Click. Okay, here we go. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I, converted Paul, born again Paul, am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now, did you see anything different with the new lens in? See a different perspective? I hope that you did. So let's look at three arguments that would support this experience as post-conversion. Normal Christian sanctification. First, I want you to look at how the law was referenced in the passage. Look at verse 22 of chapter 7. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Can an unbeliever delight in the law of God? In the inner being? This camp would argue that to be an impossibility. Why would they say that? Oh, let me just read it. I thought I had it up there. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now does that sound like somebody who delights in the law of God? Here it says that before the new birth we were dead in our sins and trespasses. Dead. And that we all followed the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air. These unregenerate people would not delight in God's law because they're dead to the things of God. Romans 8, 7 through 8 would take this thought further when it says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's Romans 8, 7 through 8. This is saying an unregenerate man, the one whose mind is set on the flesh, which is hostile to God, does not submit to God's law and actually cannot do so. So, how can an unregenerate man delight in the law of God?
This camp would say only saved people can delight in God's law in the inner person. That's argument one. Second argument goes like this. Look at the verb tenses in the passage from today. If you've got it in front of you, I don't know if I put it up here or not. I don't know if I went through that or not. I don't think I did. I didn't. Listen, let me just read some verb tenses from the 14 through 25 passage. And you tell me what tense these verbs are in. The law is, I am, I do not do, I do, I hate, I have the desire, I do not do the good I want, I keep on doing, I find it to be a law, I delight, I see in my members, making me captive, wretched man that I am, I myself serve, with my flesh I serve. What are the verb tenses? Present and maybe a perfect tense, which is present action with effects leading into the future. I mean, that's, that's plain, right? The majority of these verbs are present tense. A few are future, maybe perfect with present actions, effects in the future. Simply looking at the verbs would make one think that Paul was speaking of himself as he is in the moment that he was writing the letter. Question, was Paul converted when he wrote the book of Romans? Yes. We know of his conversion experience on the road to Damascus. He was traveling to Damascus to persecute the church. Jesus showed up brighter than the noonday sun, knocks him off his donkey and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Go to Damascus and then you're going to start doing what I tell you to do. Yes, Lord. Conversion. That was many years before he wrote the book of Romans. So, as Paul writes in the present tense as he writes the book of Romans, that is post-conversion. So the present tense would seem to imply post-conversion. That's pretty simple, right? If he was referring back to his pre-conversion self, one would think he would say, Oh, wretched man that I was. Or he would say that his flesh had served the law of sin before, but not now. But all the action is seemingly taking place in the here and now. And as this side would argue, that is plain and it is significant. That sounds pretty reasonable and compelling too, doesn't it? Yeah. So, an unregenerate man can't delight in the law of God in his inner person. Paul is speaking in present tense verbs. Those are two arguments. And this is the third one. This camp would say that Paul is referring to his present post-conversion experience because, and I like this one, Paul had a very different opinion of himself regarding the law prior to his conversion. Let me explain what I mean by that. In our passage from Romans 7, Paul speaks of his inability to keep the law, his doing what he doesn't want to do and not doing what he wanted to do. He talks of his complete failure in keeping the law. But if you look in a couple of other places in the New Testament, we see Paul saying almost exactly the opposite of that. Did I go backwards here? I didn't know that was up there. There's my Ephesians passage. I bet the rest of them are up there too. These are the moments where you go, oh, yep, there's Romans 8, 7 through 8. Oh, I hope I didn't put them all up here again. Bear with me. I did. Here's where I need a straight clicker. I can just go click. What I'm looking for is these verses that's going to explain how Paul talked about his pre-conversion experience with the law. And the first one is in Galatians 1, 13 through 14. 
For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers, which includes the law. So that in and of itself is not real compelling, but if you tie it in with Philippians chapter 3, verses 4-6, through 6, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, Paul says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That sounds a little different than I can't keep the law. Wretched man that I am, this law is impossible to keep. Here in his pre-conversion experience, Paul says, yep, I kept the law. The external code of the law, blameless. It doesn't sound very desperate, does it? It sounds pretty like, check me out. I was blameless under the law. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Advancing in Judaism, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That sounds different than someone who says he can't keep the law. That sounds like someone who is boasting in his ability to at least externally make it look like he can keep the law in the physical realm. Blameless may be a false boast, but it shows that he felt pretty good about how he related to the law, whereas Romans 7 doesn't give that vibe at all. This camp would say that once converted, Paul saw that he was unable to keep the law once he saw the perfection that it demanded. And that would lead him to feel despair at his inability. Pharisee Paul loved the law, kept the law, and demanded that others do the same. These attitudes about the law and Paul's efforts to keep it pre- and post-conversion would lead the camp that we're referring to here to believe that Paul is looking at himself in his post-conversion experience as one who was woefully inadequate to keep the law. And he didn't feel that way about himself before his conversion, although he probably should have. Pretty compelling, right? It's as compelling in my mind as the other five arguments that we've seen, which makes it kind of tough to figure out where to stand on all this, doesn't it? Some of you may have come in here with a very clear perception. This is what I believe, and now you may be going, well, shoot, I don't know. Let me tell you, I've wrestled with this all week long. But we've got to come to a decision. It can't be both ways. It can't. It can't be describing both experiences. So we've got to make a decision. Where do you stand? Now I think if we polled the audience, I think we'd see a full spectrum. I think some people would say pre-conversion, some people would say post-conversion. And pretty much everything in between. And it would be tough to argue against either stance, to be honest with you. I have historically been in one camp, and I still stand in that one camp, but looking at both sides surely helps me understand why the side that I don't agree with feels like they do. I understand why they feel that way, because I can look at the three arguments and the three arguments and say, you know what, those are all very compelling arguments. So what do we do? First of all, let me say this. 
This process for me has shown me that I should not discount people's thoughts just because they don't agree with me. And let me tell you what, as Christians, we are prone to do that. Either you believe like I do or you're wrong. And there are some things we should surely say that about, the deity of Christ, salvation by grace through faith alone. There's a handful of things, and we could name them all off. But you know what? And golly, this is something that I'll probably say that later on in my life I would like to expunge from the records that I said it. We don't always live in a black and white world. Treading carefully and very reverently, sometimes the Bible is not just black and white. Now that's not a license to go out and interpret any way you want to. It has to be interpreted according to tradition. It has to be interpreted according to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. It has to be interpreted diligently, not just on the fly. Well, this is what Grandpa always said, so this is what I believe. I am encouraging us as a body to wrestle with this. Wrestle with it. Let it grab you by the throat and throw you down. Grab it by the throat and throw it down. Roll around on the floor with it. Wrestle with it. Because this is hard. No apologies for that. And a lot of things in Scripture are hard. And we shy away from them. We don't want to talk about it. We just look to the statement of faith on the website and say, well, that's what we believe and I'm fine with it. Shame on us if that's what we do. Don't just accept something because somebody says it. Don't just accept something because I say it. Hopefully, prayerfully, I've been diligent and I've done some work and I'm not just standing up here shooting from the hip saying, well, this is what I believe, so you should believe it too. Hopefully, you can put some, some pretty good confidence in what I'm saying. But don't just take it from me. Don't just take it from Charles Stanley or John MacArthur or John Piper or Andy Stanley or... Don't get me started on Andy Stanley. Sorry. So, don't just discount people's thoughts because they don't agree with you. Because especially in this instance, they can have valid reasons. They can have valid arguments for thinking like they think. But my wrestling with this has also helped me to be more resolute even in the midst of contesting thoughts and options. So, with all that being said, let me tell you where I stand. I don't know. I'm just playing. I do have a stance. I believe that Paul is referring in Romans 7, 14 through 25 to his post-conversion experience. And I have a lot of reasons for believing this, and they'll come out over the next week or two as we dive into this text and work through it. But for now... Let me say this about why I think so. I believe Paul is describing to a T the conflict between the flesh and the Spirit that can only occur in a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. I think he is honestly feeling and relating to the sin that dwells in him, in his flesh, and is crying out, listen, for a subjective experiencing of the objective truth of his being declared righteous and just by a holy God. And what that means is the declaration has come from heaven. It is a judicial, legal declaration justified, saved, given the very righteousness of Christ. Now let me ask you this question. How many of you walk in the righteousness of Christ all the time, every day?
You don't. So do you sin post-conversion? Listen very closely to me. There are people out there who teach that you will not sin after you are converted. They'll refer back to 1 John, which we talked about a lot when we went through 1 John, when John said, those who are born again do not sin. And what did we see in that passage? I know that's reaching way back and you've got to look in the... What is it, Hamlet? The, the library? What's the library? Yeah, somewhere in the middle there. In your library, you've you got to reach back. And what we said was, a Christian who is born again doesn't habitually sin as everything that they do. That's what sin meant in that passage. So, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, those people that are teaching you will not sin after you get born again, or even more dangerously, there are those out there who preach that there's a second experience of grace. That once you're born again, you should pray and fast and seek that second experience which takes you to a higher level, which is above sin. i got three words for that. Heresy. Well, that's one word. It is heretical to teach that you will ever reach a position in your life where you do not sin. Heretical. It's also heretical, which is the point of Romans 7, to teach that you should try to keep the law in order to please God. What Romans 7 teaches us is that the law has no power to help us to become more holy. The law simply convicts us of our sin, and then it is the Holy Spirit, and we'll talk about that. Where was the Holy Spirit and all this? We'll talk about that. You cannot keep the law even in your post-conversion experience. And again, we've got two or three weeks to talk about all this. So I do believe that Paul is describing to a T the conflict between flesh and spirit that can only occur in a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. I think he is wanting to subjectively experience the objective truth of his being declared righteous by just and holy God. That's what I believe. So you should believe it because I said it. And I, I'm super excited to get into it, but we don't have time today to get into it. I just wanted to present to you both cases. I wanted to be fair. So my question at the end of all this is, who's the goat? It's Peyton Manning, right? That's the point of all. The point of all this is Peyton Manning is the greatest to know. The point in all this is, I'm sure this discussion will go on and on and on and on and on and on and on until we see Jesus face to face. I am sure that not every question has been answered today. Probably have more questions at this point than you had before you come in here. And to that I say, good. And I'm sure we're not all in 100% agreement at this point, and that's okay. Because what are we going to do with it? We're going to wrestle. We're going to wrestle with it. Come on, let's wrestle. Let's wrestle it out together. Let's point and counterpoint for another couple of weeks at least. And let's enjoy this process. Some people come and they're thinking, oh, he's he just saying stuff I don't believe. Come on, let's talk about it. Let's sit at the tables back here at lunch and let's talk about it. Not mad at each other, not fussing at each other, but just saying, hey, man, I don't, I don't know if I agree with that. Good, let's talk about it. It's one of the things that I love about the Bible. Listen, 
It will break us. We will not break it. I would ask you all, as homework for this week, to read all of chapter 7 as many times as you can. Read it from one perspective one time, another perspective another time. Write down thoughts, write down questions. But read chapter 7 as many times as you can. And come next week prepared to start an in-depth look at this passage. And all through this week, guys, wrestle with this. Wrestle with it. Pray about it. God, help me to understand this. God, I believe your Holy Spirit abides in me. He penned these words through the Apostle Paul. What did he mean? Now, are you going to get enlightened and come in here and say, God gave me the answer. Thus saith the Lord. No, you're not going to. I promise you're not going to. But you can be more confident in your stance as we wrestle it out together. Let me pray. God, You are an infinite God. There is no end to You. There was no beginning that You had. And so as we look at Your Word, may we not be content to just make it an open and shut case on some of these issues. God, these are things that until we see Jesus face to face, until we are made perfect subjectively, Man, we're just not going to know for sure. But help us to plant our feet as we wrestle with the Word, as we wrestle with each other. And may we not arrogantly defend our side. May we not pompously look down on people who don't agree with us. May we lovingly spur one another on to love and to good deeds. And may we honestly evaluate who we are in relation to this passage. More importantly, God, may we see who You are in relation to this passage. And Jesus, You said that we would know the truth and the truth would set us free. And God, that's what we cry out for, just like the Apostle Paul does in this section. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he closes it with a beautiful proclamation when he says... Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's what we end this time with today. And may it be our proclamation as we wrestle through this. Help us, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you can, please stay with us. Please eat with us. And I do want to proclaim a good word over you as we close. Good word is benediction. And it's an encouraging benediction. And I've hit the wrong button. So you must wait for the encouraging benediction. Nothing like technology. There we go. It's a familiar one. Keep in mind what we just talked about. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you all.